Good morning. My name is Michael Tilley. I'm one of the elders here at One Ancient Hope. Our lead pastor, Didi Wong, is still on vacation this week um, and for the last couple of weeks. Uh, but he is coming back next Sunday. So if you don't like my preaching, that's okay. Uh, and uh, it'll get much better next week, I promise. So a little weird for a sermon, but the first thing I wanted to start off with is a question, and I would actually like answers from you. It's not a rhetorical question. When you hear someone say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, do you picture a person, and if so, who is that person? (laughs) So someone says me. Any other... The okay, because why, why do you picture your classmates? Okay, so so someone who asserts that they don't believe in God—that's what you think of as the fool. Yeah. Uh, other people? Nietzsche. <laughs> Nietzsche. Yep. Okay. That that's going to be funny later. Richard Dawkins, okay? Other examples? Richard Dawkins is a known atheist. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche is a prominent 19th century atheist as well. That's good. That's what I wanted to hear. I think a lot of people have that in mind. they think of atheists. That's who you have in mind when, you, when someone says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's who I often picture when I initially do that. Uh, this is why I said, I thought it was going to be funny that you said Nietzsche. In my past life teaching philosophy, I always loved to teach Nietzsche to my students, uh, particularly to my Christian students. And that may be surprising to you since Nietzsche is known for proclaiming the death of God. Um, and for blaming the downfall of Western civilization on Christianity. He's an atheist. But Nietzsche just has this way of cutting to the heart of issues that I think a lot of Christians face, particularly a lot of cultural Christians. So when he says that God is dead, what does Nietzsche mean by that? And I, and I think that will be helpful for reading this passage uh, And one of his most famous aphorisms, it's called The Madman, the aphorism is, in section 125 of The Gay Science, Nietzsche's madman famously proclaimed that God is dead. And this idea is a central theme for Nietzsche and his critique of Western metaphysics and moral thought more generally. But it's important to be clear on what that means for Nietzsche. Although Nietzsche is an atheist, He is not making a claim about atheism when he says God is dead. Rather, he's also not making a claim about the failure of arguments for God's existence. Rather, he's making a claim about Christians of his day and time, and I think it would be applicable to Christians or believers, people who say they might believe in God in our day and time. Namely, that 
God is superfluous in our lives. That he plays no explanatory role, no role whatsoever in our lives. What does that mean? Well, if you think back in, say, the Middle Ages, how do you explain weather patterns? How do you explain why someone gets sick or gets better? How do you explain why you get crops one year and not the next? Now think about how we explain all of those things. Okay? God was prominent in all of those things in the Middle Ages. God was the source of your crops, weather patterns, whether you were sick or healthy. Today, we use science or medicine or rationality to figure these things out. This is true in most areas of life. And what Nietzsche is suggesting is that we also do this in morality. And we need to take that a step further, Nietzsche would say, and get rid of what's left of God in our morality, because oftentimes we don't even appeal to God in our moral lives. We no longer really need God to understand morality. Nietzsche thought that we could just use human physiology, psychology, and philosophy, and we would get a better morality than what he sees as a bad morality in Christianity. So why do I mention Nietzsche and this argument that he has in church? Well, I think our passage in Psalm 53 is proclaiming the death of God. But it's easy to misread that if you see that first, the fool says in his heart, as the atheist. If you note, the rest of the passage is all about how we're sinners. David isn't singing... It's a psalm, it's meant to be sung. Isn't thinking here about what people say that they believe with their mouths. He's thinking about what your hearts say. The fool says in his heart, not out of mouth, says in his heart, there is no God. That's crystal clear in the next few verses. As you look at that, They're all referencing moral behaviors or actions. We deny God with how we live, no matter what our stated beliefs are, no matter what our theological commitments are. Still, if you want to defend that, you know, maybe he's still talking about the atheist, I think there could be room for that. It's easy to read this passage as talking mainly about the enemies of Israel. It does seem like he's saying those other people at times. And some of you may have done that when you initially heard the passage or as you're rereading them now. And David himself may have very well had those people in mind when he wrote it. (laughs) But I think there are good reasons in this text and in the New Testament more broadly to read it differently. To read it in a slightly different way and the way I'm suggesting that it applies to, as Jacob said, to me, to us. So let's read it that way and see how it fits. This is a, I'm changing some words from the text, so if you can follow along with the text, but, but we are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. 
There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on us to see if there are any of us who understand, who seek after God. We have all fallen away. Together we have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have we who work evil no knowledge? As we eat up your people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. Now I think there are a couple of textual reasons for doing it, reading the passage in this way. Uh, If you look at verses 1 and 3, it says there is none who does good. It doesn't say those people don't do good. It says none, no one does good. It's not just the enemies of Israel. It's not just the ungodly, but none do good. Furthermore, that's certainly how Paul reads this passage in Romans 3. There's a famous section in Romans 3 where he, uh, and the sort of transition of Romans has a section where, where Paul says that pagans are sinful, people who deny God, atheists, they're sinful and they do evil things. That's in Romans 1. And then he talks about people who are moral, Their conscience is a law unto themselves, and they are sinful and immoral. Jewish people are also sinful and immoral. And he concludes that uh, in about uh, chapter 3, about verse 10, I think that's right, and goes into this description of how all of us, how sin is universal. It applies to everyone. He's already done that through the beginning part of Romans. But he makes it explicit, and he quotes these verses. (laughs) everyone has sinned we are all the fools that David is talking about here we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we are like the people that Nietzsche's madman was describing we say we believe in God but he is superfluous in our lives would your life be substantially different if you didn't believe in God. Maybe you wouldn't know some of the same. Maybe we wouldn't know each other. Maybe we wouldn't know because we wouldn't come together as a church and know each other. Maybe you wouldn't spend Sunday morning here. But does God make a difference in how you live your life more generally on the Monday through Saturday? So my first main point here is that the fool, we're the fools. <laughs> we are the fools who say in our heart that there is no God. My second point, though, is a little bit shorter one. Sometimes I worry that when we acknowledge this fact, that we are the fools who say there is no God, that it can lead us down to a, a, what I think is a terrible path. It's the path of what uh, I've heard some people call worm theology. Okay, um, And I want to push back against what, what we'll call worm theology. So what is worm theology? Worm theology says, Woe is me, I am but a pitiful worm when I look at God's holiness and his goodness. God is so great, I am so bad, I am a worm. I'm terrible. All humans are terrible. Just that chasm between God and humans is so great that we are worms in comparison to God. And in fact, there's a little bit of scriptural support you could offer for that, <laughs> that idea. Um, Psalm 22.6. 6. 
Uh, the, the psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man. <laughs> Isaiah 41.14 says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. So it applies to all you know, people of Israel and the church. We, we are God's people. So if there's a little bit of scriptural support for it, why well, push back against it? And I have two reasons that I want to talk about. First is that human beings are created in the image of God. And even though it's right to recognize the chasm between oneself and God, caused by our sin, to call human beings worms is to call God a worm. Since we are in his image. And it can also justify us devaluing the lives of other human beings who are also worms. And that's a horrendous evil. And I think an example of what I was talking about earlier about us killing God. We say we believe in God, but then we devalue God and other people in our our beliefs. So my second major point is that worm theology is bad theology here. The second reason that I think this is problematic, though, uh, and why I think Scripture is opposed to worm theology, despite there being some evidence for it, is found in our New Testament lesson today from Philippians 2. And I think this is prefigured a little bit by the psalm, too. Um, the psalm we read uh, in verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So if you could turn to Philippians 2. And I think Philippians 2 gives us another reason why worm theology is problematic and why the gospel is opposed to that sort of way of thinking. And here I'm going to be largely drawing on uh, an excellent theologian uh, she specializes in the early church fathers, and her name is Sarah Coakley. Uh, she specializes in the patristic period. Uh, and before I had read Sarah Coakley on, on this passage, I had what I take as probably the standard interpretation of the Philippians 2 creed. I would emphasize what it means for Jesus to have the same form as God, to have the same morphe as the Greek term here, means a shape or to, to morph into something, to have a metamorphosis. So the word is shape, but it's the form or structure of something. For Jesus to have the same form as God, but to empty himself of his divinity, uh, divinity in order to take on how, how far, what he was willing to give up for our behalf to become human. He was the same as God, but gave up that to take on a human form and that that's the message here. And we try to get, we should be like Jesus. We should be willing to give up things of our greatest value to serve others. That's the way that I had originally or often had taken this passage. We would use it to affirm the deity of Christ. To emphasize how great the incarnation is. And how grateful to Christ we should be because of that great sacrifice in the incarnation. But after reading Coakley, I was convinced that that's not the primary emphasis on this passage. 
And I think you miss a lot of the substance of the passage when you start with that sort of framework. Here's the deity of Christ. Here's the incarnation. Here's why we should be grateful for, for what Christ gave up on our behalf. So perhaps, rather than starting that way, uh, and I think there are some consequences to this too. Um, I've heard far too many people, too many Christians, they're often women, but sometimes they'll be men too, who will think of this passage and say, uh, being a servant means sacrificing myself to other people, giving up what I value about myself to help another person. And I think you can often use that sort of passage, this passage, to support that sort of reading. And it has some issues, I think, where you're not, you devalue yourself in order to help another person. But I've become convinced that it's far better to, when you read this passage in Philippians 2, that the message is ethical all the way through. It starts with, have your mind be the same as Christ Jesus. Okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Have this mind among yourselves in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? So what is this? What is the mind of Christ here? What is the ethical import that you have at the, the first five verses that then transitions into this discussion of Christ here? Well, I've become convinced that it's far better to emphasize the value that Christ places on humanity when he took on the form And verse 7, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So by emphasizing that Christ took on the form of a human servant, once again, that form word is the same, that Christ has the same form as God. Here he's saying, Christ took on the form of a human, a servant, a slave, a doulos, Okay? The Greek word is, means slave or servant, or, and it means human clearly in this context. And that emptying out here is not a decrease in the divine of Christ, but a hallowing of the human, him taking on humanity, him making humanity holy. And so rather than it being about what Christ has given up, it's about him bringing up the other. And that sh shifts the way you think about this passage, I think. And it's a big problem, I think, with this worm theology uh, and the traditional what did Christ give up interpretation of this passage. But Christ, Christ didn't value us as worms. <laughs> Rather, he made human nature holy by taking up our form he hallowed humanity, or to follow Christ's example and to love others as Christ loved us. How did he love us? He loved us as people 
Not out of guilt, not out of because we aren't worthy of love. That's not why we love other people. But he, precisely because of how much value he saw in humanity. How much value he saw in each of us. That's why he took on a human form. It isn't out of suffering, it's out of love. And that's the likeness that we're supposed to, that's the ethical import. And it's all the way through this passage. Rather than it being about what Christ is giving up, it's about what Christ is doing out of love for another. He does give things up. But it's not because of we are so low and he takes on this lowliness, but rather he brings up the low to him. And by the way, that's the traditional orthodox view of the incarnation too. Kenoasis, the emptying out, is not a giving up of divinity because Christ is still God, but it's a taking on of human nature to bring up the human. Yeah? Does that mean love isn't sacrificial? Not by any means. But the sacrifice is not made because of how lowly you think you are in comparison to the other, but it's of how important and how valuable the other is. How important you are, too, to value yourself. The biblical command is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love another person adequately unless you love yourself adequately as well. Now, earlier I talked about um, how we deny God in our lives. And I think there are practices we can put in place that can help us actively work towards seeing God in all areas of our life. You can develop a prayer life. You can see God's hand. And I know I do this personally for me when I look at hardships that I've had in the past. And I I can see God's hand. I couldn't see it at the time. (laughs) Uh, When, you know, when I... Couldn't find, you know, I said in my past life I taught philosophy, I couldn't find that coveted tenure-track job. And I, you know, that was a, uh, um, a blow to me. And I couldn't see God's hand on it at the time, but I can see it now when I look back on that. And I think it's a, a, a Christian practice to try to develop the ability to see God's hand in, in life. And it's important to see it in all areas of your life, not just what you do on Sunday. And I think... Prayer can help with that when you pray about even the little things in life. Then you can see like, oh, I brought my concern to God and something happened there. Think about how God makes a difference in your vocation, in your job, or as a student, if that's your vocation right now at this stage of your life. How your vocation extends God's kingdom and promotes truth, beauty, or goodness, all qualities of God. And I think it's important for Christians to actively and intentionally work to cultivate a way of life that, that sees God in all of life, not just in church at Sunday. Uh, and I think that's how you have a living God and not a dead God in your life. Um, so, but I, I know I fail at both of the tasks that I've mentioned here. I, I don't adequately live as if there is, I I do oftentimes live as if there is no God. And regarding that ethical insight from Philippians 2, I often don't value my own self as Christ valued me. And I think that has an impact on how I value others too. 
I'll focus on my failures uh, and my various roles as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother, cousin, an in-law, an employee, as a Christian. And that'll change the focusing on my failures in each of those roles will hurt my self-understanding uh, and it'll often spiral. I, you know, I, I screwed up here, I screwed up there, I screwed up here. You know, eh, I'm awful. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And that harms your love toward other people when you're so consumed by those sorts of things. But one of the things I want to emphasize here is that that failure isn't the end of the story, whether it's that failure to practice seeing God in all areas of your life or your failure to love others as Christ loved them, as bringing up them, other people. But Christ is gracious and loving. He values me and you. And he took on our human form. He declared us his beloved. And he did this not because of how lowly we are, not because we're worms, but because of how precious all of us are to him. And he died on the cross so that our relationship with God wouldn't be broken by our sins and that we could live in harmony with him forever. And so as we end today, I hope you know that you're Christ beloved, that he loves you, that he's pursuing you, and that he'll be with you forever. Thank you.